0: Uh, That hole in the hull could have been caused by an internal explosion out or by an external attack. Um, In my judgment, it is much more likely to have been by an external attack, because if you have an explosion in a ship, the vent path is usually up through hatches, through a funnel, not out through the hull, which is designed to withstand um, water pressure and other things. So, So it's more likely that something was punched into it from the outside.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. On this edition, the aftershocks of war in Ukraine will be felt worldwide, talking about food shortages and fertilizer. War means no spring planting in a country that supplies 40% of the world food programs wheat. Later, I'll talk to David McNair at the One Campaign. But first, the historic sinking of the Russian warship, the Moskva. It was the flagship of the black sea fleet until it went to the bottom of the sea on april the 14th if ukraine's assertion that the ship was sunk in a missile strike is true moskva is the largest warship to be sunk in action since world war ii what really happened how many sailors died on board russia has never come clean but we speak to one of the foremost naval authorities in britain who leads us through the circumstantial evidence and his verdict that a missile attack is likely. We'll also post this interview with retired Rear Admiral John Gower on YouTube, so if you wish you can see it in video form, including some of the pictures of the Moskva that John refers to. Right, joining me now is John Gower, who is a, a retired rear admiral from the British Navy, and he was also the former assistant chief of
0: defense staff. Hi, John. Hello, Dana. Good to see you again.
1: John, can you tell me the sinking of the, the Moskva, this Russian uh, flagship um, uh, craft in the Black Sea? First of all, just as somebody you know who has spent a lifetime in the Navy, how significant is this how how big a wow was this uh in in your community
0: well i think uh it is it, you do not go into a land war expecting to lose the flagship of your uh of your sea force um on on the uh on on the sea side of the battle this is not a maritime battle there has been no war between a direct war between the russian fleet and any maritime elements of the ukraine armed forces and in fact the deployment of the moskva which is quite an elderly ship it's predominantly an, a, a ship against another ship that's how it was designed it has a limited um, shore bombardment ability with its gun on the uh, on the bow and uh, and it is that gun which it used to uh, bombard Snake Island right at the beginning of the war. I think that the uh, that the Russians did not expect in any way that their maritime forces would be engaged, and yet we have seen on at least three occasions um, probable engagements and sinkings or damaging of ships, and the most latest of these is the probable sinking by Ukrainian action of the Moskva.
1: The Pentagon says there's evidence that the Ukrainians sunk it. The Ukrainians say that they fired two cruise missiles from the the shoreline near Odessa. What's your opinion?
0: Well, I must say first that I don't, as a retired naval officer, I have no access to any inside scoop or intelligence here. I speak here merely from my experience. And, uh, and I can bring up, if you like, some pictures that I've prepared which might help uh, those listening um, to, uh, to to understand what it is that i'm that I'm sure. saying. Let's have a look at them. okay. so so this is uh, Moskva. She's a big impressive ship, but as I say, she she was a new ship when I was quite a young officer. Um, so she's been around a bit. Um, we only have the images, so this clearly is an image. Um, taken some time ago, Uh, we only have the accounts uh, that the Russians have given, which is that she suffered an internal explosion uh, and fire, uh, or fire and then explosion and then loss of the ship. And the Ukrainian version, which, as you say, is backed up by um, United States intelligence, uh, that there was a cruise missile attack from a shore-based um, anti-ship cruise missile battery um, near Odessa. And some reports that a drone was also used probably as part of the targeting, but also perhaps as part of the distraction of this ship whose primary role is not anti-air. And so it is primarily an anti-surface uh, ship ship, um, and it will not have a very significant anti-air capability. Does, that, and does just, any
1: of that make sense to you that they may have used a drone or
0: two or three to distract this ship. Well, I think that uh, distraction wouldn't have been the primary objective. It might have ha- might have occurred that way. Um, they certainly would have wanted to give the missile battery an accurate position of the uh, of the target ship because these cruise missiles, the uh, the Neptune is a is a derivative of the Russian, um, again quite old but very capable um, kayak missile, the Kh thirty five. And uh, and that is a missile that can launch against a position at the, in, in, the, in, in the sea mm-hmm. without any radar on. So it's very difficult to detect. And then when it gets close to the target, it, it illuminates its radar and then homes in on the target. And if you can present a, uh, a position by using drones or any other um, intelligence capability, then you end up by uh, by making it a more stealthy approach. Um, by the by the missile if indeed that is what happened Um, so this is what she looks side on and I bring this merely to show the sort of bit that's above the waterline in grey and the bit that's below the waterline in red which is significant um, when we look at the photographs that have become available having been taken from what appears to be um, the Russian ships which went to her aid and perhaps the ships which took her under tow after the damage, whether by missile, probable, or by um, internal explosion, possible. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll come to one of those because this, this is where we can now start to look at, at, at perhaps what happened. Um, so these are the primary two photographs that have been made public. And the first thing I want to draw people's attention to is she has a lot of water inside her at the moment. Um, if you remember the previous photograph, she was standing very proud um, of the of the sea. In fact, some of the underwater, the boot topping, the brown bit was, was visible. And so what she's lost is what in naval term is called freeboard, that bit of the ship that is beloved above the waterline, uh, the, bit, the bit that keeps her afloat, the air in the ship that keeps her afloat. And just for perspective, the water line is nearly up to the break in the hull, where the hull slightly bends. Admittedly, she is heeling over towards the photographer. But if that was, you look at the previous photograph, that would be a, a rising of the water where I've marked it in blue. From mm-hmm. what you can just see around where the white line is, almost up to the uh, almost up to the, um, the top of the, top the, top the, the deck level. So a, that is a yeah. significant amount of water. In in the ship. Now, that amount of water is very unlikely to have come simply from firefighting within the ship. Some of it might have done, but the majority of that water has come in through a hole in the hull. Now, that hole in the hull could have been caused by an internal explosion out or by an external attack. Um, In my judgment, it is much more likely to have been by an external attack because if you have an explosion in a ship, the vent path is usually up through hatches, through a funnel, not out through the hull, which is designed to withstand um, water pressure and other things. So, so it's more likely that something was punched into it from the outside. And, and the reason I say that is if you look at this photograph here, which is just a zoom in on the one we've looked at, this is the area of greatest damage. So if a missile attacked, the missile hit here. These missiles seaskin in their terminal phase they go down to about 3 meters about 10 feet off the water and they hit generally on the side of the ship and if you look carefully inside the red circle you can see what appears to be a hole in the hull it's a it's a dark a mark on the hull it is unlikely to have caught fire and just burnt that bit of the thing so it looks like a hole in the hull i'm speculating But she's tilted over in that direction. She's lost a lot of freeboard. The chances are that the water has come in from a hole on her port side. And the reason I think this is that my mind, I'm old enough to remember the Falklands War. And my mind goes back to the Exocet attack um, in early May of 1982 on HMS Sheffield. So this is what Moskva looked like after the incident in April of this year. This is Sheffield after the Exocet attack in May of 1982. And on both of them, the area of the ship that's the biggest (laughs) cross-section that a missile radar would look at, where the funnel is, where the command and control area is, where the main missile area is, um, you can see in the Sheffield that the the hole from the Exocet missile is about there. Remember, this is a, a missile basically designed from a missile de- designed to look like an Exocet, So, so they're very, very similar missiles. And if you look at the Moskva, there is again, this hole that I purported to, to, that I believe to be on the port side, roughly where the largest radar mass of the ship would be to, to a, to a missile approaching the ship. And I think these two photographs show um, a very similar story. And, yeah. You would, and the other thing about the MOSFA, which is different from the Sheffield, is that around where the missiles struck, just forward of that, are all of the sandbox anti-ship missiles. There's a considerable amount of um, ammunition and other explosive uh, issue and stuff around there, detonating munitions and all of that kind of stuff. Do so, you,
1: do you want to imagine what the first uh, panicked. Uh, Thirty minutes or so w- were like on that ship after if it was indeed a missile strike.
0: Well, I think I I would want to be lurid and imagine it. Uh, if you want to know, you can read the board of inquiry report into HMS Sheffield's loss. Um, it, it's a considerable. Uh, Panic is never the right word with trained crews, but undoubtedly a massive shock. There will be initial loss of life, a huge fireball, and uh, and then you set to try and save the ship. Um, and Sheffield was saved for a little longer than um, Moskva. She also sank under tow, but she was in the South Atlantic Ocean, not in the Black Sea. Those are two very... Different bodies of water. Let's let's habit. lose that.
1: Let's lose that picture, John, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So they're saying that the captain of the ship died in this in this attack. It, it may be. I mean, he could have died in many different ways. Fighting the the fire, being there when the ship sunk, he may have died even in the first few seconds of this because that hit, according to the the picture that we're looking at or we were looking at in this just below or very close to the command and control. Do you call that the bridge?
0: Well, the bridge is where you look out and drive the ship from. Uh, that, that In most modern warships, and I'm sure uh, Moscow is the same, there is an operations room, which is usually down below the bridge. It's usually forward, simply because it needs to be close to where the captain's cabin is, where the bridge is, um, simply for... The positioning of the key officers you you don't put the command and control center right aft because of the time taken to get there so much like sheffield the operations room in sheffield was very much where it hit um if that was the case and in the in most modern navies when there is a battle underway the captain is actually in the operations room not on the bridge Um, A more junior officer simply steers the ship where the operations room wants it to go. Um, So, um, again, it's speculation if he was in the ops room and that's where the missile hit. That may well be uh, where he died. Um, Unlikely for the captain to be actually fighting fires. That wouldn't be the primary role of the captain. His job in any circumstances to direct others uh, and maintain an overview. But, But sadly, a number of the ship's company will have lost their lives um, in this. I say sadly, simply as a mariner, um, uh, they are, of course, um, part of the arm of the country that initiated this war. So the sadness is tinged hugely.
1: Um. Notable that some of them are, are conscripts, according to the soldiers' mother's committee, who said that they shouldn't have been involved in direct action uh, but but anyway, that's that's another issue. There, there were more than 500 sailors on there, and the Russians have not come clean on how many died. But in the awards ceremony um, where, where they handed out medals to survivors, there was only about 100 in the photograph. Would you comment on that? I mean, the loss of life could be quite big. I mean, the
0: entire ship sunk. The, the loss of life could be rather big. It, it's also, I saw a couple of photographs of that ceremony. There did not appear to be any wounded or injured um, individuals there, and um, and I suspect, therefore, that uh, the difference between casualties and loss of life is is, is a different one. Um, I, I suspect that, that uh, if Sheffield's experience and other ships in the Falklands that we have lost, and indeed USS Cole when she was attacked by uh, terrorists in uh, in in the Middle East, yeah, um, and, and a number of people. A, a larger proportion of people tend to be injured either by fire or by explosion or by other other things. So, I, so I you know, I wouldn't draw the conclusion if you only saw a hundred and there were five hundred on board that four hundred were killed because I think that would be unusual in a ship that didn't immediately sink and had time to bring, um, and had time to bring uh, support vessels to her and clearly make an evacuation uh it, it's clear from that photograph that while the, there is considerable damage um in in the photograph i showed in a particular section of the ship the remainder of the ship appears to be relatively undamaged uh, so i mean i think there will definitely be deaths on board but but i i think to say it's in the hundreds i think that would be unusual you think it's safe to say that it would be in the hundreds um, no i said if you said in the hundreds i would find that unusual given that the ship was still afloat considerably long after the attack and that it appears to be relatively undamaged elsewhere in the ship. Um, Again, this is all speculation. It is, John, and
1: unfortunately we've had to speculate because the Russians want this to go away. But but it's obviously a great sense of, of national pride and a huge black eye to the Russian Navy to lose that ship because i think in historical terms what whatever navy you're from to lose your your flagship um in a conflict uh is is quite remarkable is it not i mean this uh, you know i've covered the curse which was the russian uh, loss of a submarine um but but i mean this this is quite recent and a very large loss to the russian navy
0: Yes, I mean you've mentioned the Kursk and I, and I was going to talk about about Kursk because she is she is significant in the other possible cause of the loss of Moskva, Russia has or the Soviet Union um and Russia depending on either side of, of of the change of of name and status has had a number of losses of ships and submarines over the decades uh, the latest significant one was Kursk uh, kursk was an entirely self-generated um, system failure followed by explosion followed by loss of all hands and the submarine they previously in the mid-1980s lost a mike class submarine off the coast of norway which caught fire with very few survivors and sank um so uh, problems with their systems and the manpower mixed between professional and conscripts that man it have dogged the russian and the soviet navy for decades so that is why i i can't exclude i wouldn't exclude that this was um uh, this could have been uh, a, an internal accident uh, obviously a very significant kind but i think the evidence in the photographs tends to, Lean far more. And as the US intelligence uh, um, backs up, perhaps there is other information that's not in the public domain. Um, but I think just an analysis of the photograph shows um, that my, 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 if I had to choose, I would say this was as a result of an attack. But we, we shouldn't rule out the Russian explanation because it's not as if it would be the first time they'd lost a major ship or submarine through accident.
1: Look, I know you have a huge amount of expertise in in chemical, biological, nuclear, and I just can't let you go without asking you, do you think that this danger uh, of some of the threats from President Putin um, has eased somewhat? I mean, he hinted at a possible use of a nuclear tactical weapon, and there are great fears of of them using chemical weapons as they did in Syria. Do you have... uh, reason to you know exhale and feel that you're you're we're through a more dangerous uh period now with the russians or do you think that that threat is still there looming and something we have to really take note of
0: i i don't exhale with any relief at any stage of this war um as i think i said to you in an earlier interview when we discussed this uh the veiled threats, uh, very thinly veiled threats that the president made and some of his senior um, staff, military and political, made about, which were couched in terms that made it absolutely clear um, that if there was intervention by a neighbouring state or indeed by NATO, uh, that uh, nuclear weapons were definitely within the, the, the field of arms on the table um, on the one hand, you could say that that intervention has not occurred for a whole host of reasons, uh, mo- mostly because intervention uh, is it, it, the one thing you can say about any intervention is that the life of the average Ukrainian would become much more dangerous instantly, um, even more so than under the, the callous bombardment uh, of the Russians. So, so uh, and and NATO and the US in particular took very great care not to rise to any of the nuclear saber rattling that President Putin undertook at the beginning. And I said in that interview with you that that him using a weapon as part of his war against Ukraine, a nuclear weapon, is extremely unlikely. Um, I would never venture to say President Putin would not do dot, 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 because every time you try and say that, he then goes and does it um but i think it would be extremely unlikely because uh if you wanted to guarantee an intervention that would be the way to go about it um so whilst i don't exhale with relief and i don't think anything has changed as a result of the change in strategy um in moscow where they have moved from trying to take the capital to possibly the original um, um most a significant strategic thing for uh, Russia and that is a land bridge to um, the illegally annexed Crimea part of Ukraine um I, I i don't remove i i don't think that removes um the minimal possibility of these weapons what i don't think has changed at all however is if things are not going the way um that uh the president and the leading apparatchiks in Moscow want it to go, and in particular if resilience continues to be shown by everyone from um, President Zelensky down to the civilians whose stoic reaction to the murder of their families we see daily on television, um, I I remain afraid that um, the predilection of the Russians and President Putin in particular in person to resort to um, barbaric weapons, chemical weapons and biological weapons in the terrorization of the civilian community, um, I, 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 I could not rule that out. I don't think that has changed. And I think the way in which you counter that is to make it absolutely clear, as I've said before, that if those weapons are used, in addition to the countless Um, breaches of international humanitarian law that have already taken place in the Ukraine war, Um, you would assiduously seek out, try and bring to justice all of those in the command chain who were part of the release of those those weapons of terror.
1: John Gower, uh, Rear Admiral, retired from the British Navy. Uh, Thank you so much, John. Thank you. David McNair is a member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's the executive director of global policy for the One Campaign, and he is a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. David, as you know, Carnegie just had to unfortunately close their office in Moscow.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's dark times that we're living through, for sure. So
1: let's talk about the invasion of Ukraine in the sense that this is creating according to many experts now, one of the worst disruptions to the supply of wheat since the First World War. And as prices spike, the damage of this uh, shock will ripple right right around the world, affecting corn, vegetable oil, fertilizers, many other agricultural products. Over to you.
2: Thanks, Tina. Um, I mean, what a lot of people don't realize is that Russia and Ukraine together are, in a sense, the breadbasket of of the world. They supply together a third of the world's wheat, uh, a quarter of the world's barley, and Russia supplies eighteen percent of the world's potash, which is a, a critical ingredient in uh, nitrate fertilizer. So we're it's almost like there's a kind of set of dominoes that are kind of you know falling, and each one is knocking another. And um, so because the immediate exports of of those you know, key commodities. Uh, usually come uh, from ports in the Black Sea. Those ports are not closed, so there's kind of spikes on international markets in the immediate term. Uh, in the kind of medium term, the, the planting of wheat is being disrupt, disrupted uh, because of the war, particularly in Ukraine and the kind of eastern part of the, of the country. Uh, and then the long term impacts for next year's harvest are that you know this kind of uh, lack of supply of, of fertilizer is is kind of sending you know the, the markets kind of haywire. Um, and the implications of this could be quite significant. I mean, the the World Food Programs director, David Beasley, has said that this could, you know, create a food security crisis, uh, you know, like nothing that we've seen since the Second World War. And um, the immediate countries that are likely to be affected are those that are highly dependent on those two regions for their stable goods. So Egypt. Well, let's, example, let's talk
1: about that, because according yeah. to the UN, there are 50 countries that depend on Russia and Ukraine. For 30% more of their wheat supply, 30% or more, and many developing countries in Northern Africa, uh, Asia, and the Near East are the most reliant. Which ones stand out to you that are going to be caught
2: in this squeeze? Well, Egypt is the is the first one that everyone talks about. 70% of Egypt's wheat comes from uh, Russia and, U- and Ukraine, um, and you know, from what I've heard, the country has reserves available until June, and after that, then you know there are there are, there's a need for kind of identifying you know other supplies. And um, you know, bread is a staple in Egypt. You know, the the government already subsidizes you know bread supply for for the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and Egypt's also in a lot of debt, and um, so there are discussions about if Egypt has to you know seek a program from the IMF. One of the conditions of that IMF program might be reforming the, the wheat subsidies so you could see a situation like we had in 2009 10 um where you know high prices of and high high cost of living lead to instability uh, like we saw with the arab spring and that can then uh, out in um, fact egypt that, isn't the-
1: that is one of the things that started the demonstrations against hosni mubarak in egypt right was the rising rising food prices maybe even sugar
2: i think specifically about yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's not just Egypt. I mean, there are countries across uh, the Middle East. But even, you know, looking down um, and I've just got a graph in front of me, which I'll just kind of talk you through. Uh, but every, everywhere from Uganda, Tunisia, mm-hmm. Gambia, Senegal, Congo, Rwanda, all of these countries depend on, on, on Russia and Ukraine for more than half of their wheat. And um, so those costs are going to go up. And the challenge in sub-Saharan Africa is that because poverty rates are so high, Families tend to spend a higher proportion of their weekly income on food. Mm-hmm. And that food tends to be, you know, they're, they're not <clears throat> typically buying, you know, meat and vegetables. They're buying basic staples. And these are the staples that are shooting up in price. And um, so the World Bank has suggested that over 90 million people could be pushed into extreme poverty. How I mean, you know, many as a result? 1919? No, 90. 90. Nine and what that means is, is, is an individual living on less than one dollar ninety cents a day.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I think when we when we uh, when we kick these figures around, I mean, ninety million people could be affected by by food shortage. I, I don't think we realize the scale of that.
2: Yeah. So, so the, I mean, one of the the kind of immediate impacts is that. Uh, the humanitarian crises that were already crises that were served by UN agencies like the World Food Programme, serving those populations who are already in food crisis is going to cost a lot more. And um, So we need you know, countries to step up, donor countries to step up and, and fund those, those immediate programs. But the longer term impacts are that this is converging with fiscal positions, particularly in, in vulnerable countries. Um, that and were re- on
1: the tail end of a pandemic, so countries—that's that's what
2: I was about to say. So, so, so COVID nineteen really weakened countries' economies, uh, and those countries, you know, still don't have, by and large, you know, va- access to, to vaccination. And um, about sixteen percent of the African population is fully vaccinated. And um, so, so the the pandemic is still a live issue in Africa. You've got the impact of you know the hit on tourism migrant remittances, um, and about 40% of African countries are in or at high risk of debt distress. So you've got an economic cocktail. And then on top of this, you've got rising energy and food prices, uh, which are going to kind of create more and more challenges. So so it's, it's, it's at a family level with food prices going up for people buying food day to day. But it's also at a kind of country level in terms of the debt sustainability and the impacts and the ability of governments to respond.
1: But I guess it really depends on whether Ukraine is able to plant and, and that, that's a big question mark right now but it it unfortunately does not seem like this is going to end quickly <clears throat> so then you have the the food and agriculture organization the fao following assessments they looked at 24 oblasts you know which are these big regions inside ukraine um and it said it's they were able to do 19 because obviously some of them are directly in a war zone but uh it, it indicated it's uncertain that that Ukraine can plant new crops uh, or sustain livestock production um, and and a huge question mark about whether there'll be any kind of harvest at all.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, So there's the the planting and the harvest. There is some evidence that Russia has been directly targeting agricultural facilities. So there's the processing that's being, you know, infrastructure that's being damaged, and then you've got, you know, the actual infrastructure to export those those crops, you know, at the Black Sea, uh, ports like Odessa and so on. So they would need to be opened up. So, I mean, it's not looking like a good situation at all. So
1: is there an answer here where, I mean, obviously, long term, you know, we hope that there's going to be some kind of movement towards peace in Ukraine. You know, don't hold your breath in the short term. But is there an other countries that can step up or, or how do we fill this gap this critical uh
2: human gap for for people who will not have bread on the table so i think there are a few things that can be done and um, the first is uh, and there were actually a number of discussions last week at the imf uh international monetary fund and world bank meetings mm-hmm. about how countries could respond so the first thing is do no harm uh, and that is you know both make sure that the humanitarian appeals are funded But also one thing that countries sometimes do in in wake of a food price spike is to impose export bans. And that creates even more volatility in the market. And, you know, prices shoot up. Indonesia did it last week with palm oil. And but the resisting of those export bans for for grain producers is really important.
1: That's a hard sell, though, isn't it? I mean, if I can just jump in there, and then I'll let you continue on. Is that's a hard sell for a country that can anticipate a shortage of palm oil, for instance, and then telling them, well, you know, don't impose an export ban because it's going to make it worse. It's going to make it better domestically for that country, though.
2: Yeah, I think that's the political challenge. Um, but the, the the issue is that the you know the 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 prices for these commodities are set on international markets, uh, and whenever you have those those kind of shocks. Um, and shortages, you know, it creates, you know, more spikes and then more competition. And that is contagious. So what we saw at the start of the, um, you know, whenever Putin first invaded, um, you know, Ukraine is the number one producer of sunflower oil. So the, the prices started going up on international markets. International buyers then started buying, you know, switching to palm oil. So palm oil started shooting up. Palm oil is a, a staple uh in, in West Africa. So it's not just the direct effects, it's the kind of knock on effects that occur. And that's what we're trying to avoid, even though it is a politically challenging thing to do, as you've mentioned, because of, of domestic political pressures. And um, so there's the, the do, do no harm part. There is uh, a second kind of basket of responses, which are really about how we support vulnerable countries in their ability to respond and, and the economic shock of all of this. Um, so the World Bank announced uh, a, a new uh, initiative, about $170 billion worth over the next few years. Now, a lot of that is front-loading existing funding that the World Bank had already programmed, which is the right thing to do, but we need to kind of then, you know, have that you know, other funding in place. Um, another thing that uh, the IMF is working on is um, fiscal support to countries through a mechanism called special drawing rights, this is something that was created at the imf in the 1960s basically to help countries respond to shocks um, and uh, in in response to the covid pandemic the imf board created one hundred or 650 billion dollars worth of imf special drawing rights uh, these can be used by countries to shore up their well, special
1: drawing rights
2: yeah uh, so it's so it's a basically it's a it's a it's an imf reserve asset mm-hmm. which is Valued based on a basket of currencies, and countries when they're allocated them, can use them to either you know buy foreign currency, shore up their reserves, or they can exchange them for U.S. dollars to buy vaccines or wheat or whatever it might be. And um, so this is a major injection of capital into the into the you know international system, which happened last August. But because of IMF rules, the majority are allocated to. Uh, well, they're allocated on the basis of how many shares. A country holds in the IMF, so most went to the richer countries, and now there's a kind of initiative to try and get those richer countries to transfer theirs to, to vulnerable countries. That actually yeah, I would them. think, otherwise, it's
1: pretty. It, it, it just creates a larger a larger circle of 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 harm, right? If if rich yeah. countries are able to draw on those funds more than poor countries, that's that kind of
2: defeats the whole purpose, doesn't it? Exactly. Um, so this initiative that the, the one campaign has been working on is basically trying to get those rich countries that received about $400 billion worth to mm-hmm. transfer at least a quarter of that to uh, vulnerable countries so that they can respond to the shock of both the COVID Success? pandemic, but also the U- Ukraine conflict. Success in doing that? We've got about uh, $40 billion so far. Um, so there's there's a lot uh, that still needs to be done. Um, but $40 billion is not nothing. It's a pretty significant uh, injection of capital for those vulnerable countries.
1: Let me ask you the final question, and that is: I'm puzzled by um, African countries, which are bearing the brunt of of the the lack of food, um, and and will have you know the, the the largest crisis in you know you're already talking about July, right? So, I mean, it, it will just it, it, you know get worse and and deepen as the year travels on here. Why do you think that African countries were some of the weakest uh, at the United Nations in terms of supporting resolutions against this war and against Russia?
2: So this is a really interesting development. There were three votes, two condemning Russia's actions, and then one to exclude Russia from the Human Rights Council. And in each of those votes, half of the countries that abstained were African. And there are a number of theories behind that. One is just that, you know, African countries just don't want to get involved in other people's uh, wars, you know, the non-alignment movement and so on. The second is that uh, African countries see a lot of hypocrisy from NATO. You know, I've heard references to to Libya and and so on. But the third, and this is really interesting to me, is that because of how African countries were, were treated by the West during the pandemic, they no longer see the West as a trusted partner. And so what we saw during the pandemic was, you know, Europe and North America, you know, monopolized vaccines. And, you know, African countries, even though they had their own cash, weren't able to buy them because all of the supply had been bought up by by Europe and North America. There was meager debt relief, meager economic support. Um, And I think part of what some countries' calculus is, is that they want to hedge their bets. Because if they're going into a, a, a kind of potential crisis extreme vulnerability you know they want to be able to turn to china you know for economic support they maybe even want to be able to turn to russia for military support if they need it and um, and that's that's largely because you know the the west has not really supported african countries in the way that they would have expected and um, so in in a sense if we're kind of moving into a kind of new cold war scenario actually the economic support that the west gives to africa is not just a kind of a moral imperative or a humanitarian issue. It is actually about, you know, the the alignment of those countries and who they trust in this international configuration.
1: David McNair, great to talk to you, David. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's our backstory this week. Subscribe to and share this podcast. And I also put out a newsletter every few days. A lot of it focused on the war in Ukraine right now. Dana Lewis.substack. Check it out. Thanks for listening to Backstory, and special thanks to David McNair and Rear Admiral John Gower. I'm Dana Lewis, and I'll talk to you again soon.